Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. How can Luke ensure that his addressees get the point? Wisdom does not come from you. Life does not come from you. The baby in Elizabeth's womb does not come from you. It's not your story, Zacharias. You still don't believe me? You still believe the child is yours? Do you still have something to say? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 434 of the Bible as Literature podcast. When people tell their story, they always tell a history in which they are on the right side of history. That is such a monstrous statement. Anytime someone says we are on the right side of history or we need to get on the right side of history or you need to join us on the right side of history, know that you are listening to, speaking with, or bearing witness to the enemy of Scripture. Because what they are telling you is that they are the descendants of the good guys and they're going to tell you a story in which they, the present-day good guys, come from good guys. And so now you should listen to what they say and join them in doing what they are about to do or about to perpetrate. That might be a better choice of words in 2022. That's what institutions do. That's what politicians do. That's what leaders of all shapes and sizes do. That's what internet influencers do. They tell you a story in which there was some ancient evil. And then there was a great generation that rose up against this evil. And we come from that generation. And what's most profound about the disastrous state of things in the world today is that everybody is talking about the same mythical evil and how they are the children of the good guys who defeated that evil. And on the basis of that myth, they are fighting with each other. 
that's the same story. Whatever religion you are, I'm not just talking about different flavors of Christianity. I'm talking about all the is-me, all the isms. Whatever religion you are, whatever you hear on Friday night, Saturday, or Sunday, someone is going to emasculate your sacred text by turning it into a right side of history story. And that's what Luke is disallowing in chapter one of his gospel by shutting the mouth of the priest. People have these expectations all the time of how things have been, how things are, and how things they're going to be, and they write this whole story up in their heads, and then once they get together, they start telling each other this story, and then they have this group story, and whether it's the internet or the town square, this is how humans understand themselves, and they understand history, just like you said. But you know, history is just a story. In Latin, it's the same word. Many languages use the same word for both history and story. That's how it works. The people are expecting a certain thing to come out of the temple. They're expecting things to work a certain way in the temple because they have a story of how things are supposed to function in the temple. Now, of course they do. And the prophets have been talking for centuries before this time about how things were supposed to run in the temple because they misunderstood how they thought things were supposed to be in the temple. In Hosea, the people think that things are supposed to run in the temple, you know, similarly to how the Baal cult works, and so they start to get confused. The land sometimes gets fertilized by Baal and sometimes gets fertilized by Yahweh by marrying one or sleeping with the other. So the people get confused because they have this story in their head. Just because the story in your head is clear to you doesn't mean you're not confused. The only reason you're not confused is because you are your own reference point. Your state of being, your context, your way of viewing things, and your lenses are all your reference point. So here we have the people waiting for a certain thing to come out of the temple, which they know is going to come, and God, with his right-hand man, Gabriel, decided to disrupt things in the temple, to disrupt the story that people had, including Zechariah, to present the people with a new story so that they would have to deal with the Lord's words that make up that story because the story they have in their head was created by them. This is what idolatry means. This is where the idolatry is coming from. They constructed a story. They constructed an image. They constructed something with their own hands. And now God has to send Gabriel just to start chipping away at that idol in order to finally destroy it so people will hear the word without the interruption, without the disruption, without the barriers and obstacles of their own stories. In their story, Jerusalem is their city, the temple is their shrine, the priest is their hero because he's connected to their king, and they are the good guys on the right side of history because the story is about them and God is incidental to the story. In the scriptural story, they are the problem. The temple is the problem, the priest is the problem, and the people are the problem. They are not the good guys. In the biblical story, neither the people of Judah nor the people of Rome are the good guys. 
go hear Paul's letter to the Romans. Just hear it again and again and again. We tell a human story from a human perspective with a human premise, which is us. When someone tells the history of World War II and talks about the greatest generation and then says that religion is the cause of all wars at the same time, without realizing it, they're still religious. They're just constructing a different religion. They are still pushing for their own divinity. They're just using different terminology. They're still tracing their line all the way back to their gods, just like the Hellenists of old, because they want to be gods. And then out of one side of their mouth, they critique nationalism, and out of the other side of their mouth, they cheer for nationalism when it fits their narrative from the perspective of their human premise when the nationalism they clap for is on, quote, the right side of history. So you tell me who the fascists are. You tell me who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Scripture is very clear. We are the bad guys. Forget about it. Straight as an arrow. We are the problem. The people weren't waiting to hear the words of God. What does it say in verse 21? The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. What good is a priest who can't recite scripture aloud? What good is he? What good is a priest who can't stand on the amvon and preach scripture? What good are his signs and wonders? Let's go back to Deuteronomy. What good are his signs and wonders? The people realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he made signs. But what good were they? Because he remained mute. Of what value is Zacharias if he cannot recite the Dabarim, the words of Scripture, to the people? His priesthood, in verses 21 and 22, is non-functional. Non-functional. He is a worker of signs and wonders, but he cannot teach a dead stick because he can't speak. Non-functional. The people want a human story. They want a human history. that grants them victory, that gives them a human hope in the face of the temple's destruction. They want to know where their place is in history. They want to know that somehow 
their defeat leads to a victory. They're still stubborn. They're not listening. They were waiting, Rich. They were waiting for Zacharias. They weren't waiting for the scroll of instruction. As they're waiting for the priest to come out, the crowds already are on shaky ground because they marvel Ethavmazon that he hasn't come out. This reminds me at the end of Matthew when they wanted Jesus to drink from the sponge because who knows, Elijah might show up and the people get very excited because there might be something cool that's going to happen. Zechariah is tarrying. He's taking too long inside the temple as he's lighting the incense and the people are already amazed. Now, there's nothing to be amazed about because he's still inside the temple. So what are they so amazed by? They're amazed by, like you said, Father, their idea, their story that they're already writing in their head that there are going to be signs and wonders when Zechariah comes out. Because, oh my goodness, he's tarrying too long. He's having a holy moment with God, and maybe he's going to come out and perform some miracle or do something wonderful, or who knows what's going to happen. And that's how the crowds think. And we got to know the crowds pretty well in Matthew and Mark. We know that we can't trust them. And so the people there waiting are excited about what's going to happen. When he comes out, he doesn't speak. The very prophecy that the people will have to fast from the word of the Lord comes to pass right here at the beginning of Luke. He comes out and there is no word of the Lord. Zechariah, you know, tries to indicate something with some gestures or whatever, but there is no sign or wonder. There's only these lame human gestures, so they try to understand what happened. And yes, he received the word of the Lord directly from the hand of the Lord's messenger, Gabriel. However, he couldn't communicate it. He couldn't say anything, which, as he said, Father, means he's non-functional. Okay, he lit the incense. <laughs> Hopefully, he doesn't say if he finished lighting the incense or not. We knew that was his job. We didn't know if he completed his job. But as a priest, his job is to teach the word of the Lord, and he can't do it. Why? Because the Lord, through his messenger, closed his mouth. This is the hand of the Lord that's silencing the word of the Lord. This is the fast from the word of the Lord. Just like Ezekiel, who was made silent after eating the scroll before he could finally open his mouth and teach the word of the Lord. So Zechariah, his mouth is shut, but the word is going to come from, I don't know what you call it, his nephew, Jesus, after his wife is pregnant with John, who's going to leave the temple anyway to give the word of the Lord out in the wilderness, in the Jordan. The word is leaving the temple. The word is leaving the temple. The servant of the altar, the priest, as righteous as he might be, his mouth is silent. But his son is going to leave the temple, leave Jerusalem, leave Judea, and go out into the Jordan to preach the word in order to pave the way for Jesus to finally come and deliver the ultimate word of his father. And this word 
By the way, Richard, that is translated here in the New American Standard Bible as signs, making signs. It only appears once in the New Testament. It's not the same as the typical word for sign in the New Testament, which is Simeon. What's interesting is that he can't speak he comes out of the temple, and he himself is trying to make these gestures. So he's trying to concoct something. He's trying to do the hocus pocus, literally, in Latin. He's trying to make gestures to communicate something, and he's coming up empty. He can't do anything with his hands because they're human hands. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. It's a very sad, dark statement for a righteous priest. The angel of God spoke to him, and this is how it turned out because he didn't trust in the angel's words. He did not believe Gabriel, and so he was reduced to standing on the Amvon in front of the people, making silly hand gestures, unable to speak. And when he was done being a priest, he just went back to his house. He was canceled by God, literally. The temple was canceled, and a righteous priest was canceled. Because nothing good comes from the hand of man. Nothing. There is no story. There is no right side of history. There are no good guys. If the righteousness of Zechariah and Elizabeth is righteousness, as Luke said, it comes from the one who made the heavens and the earth. So what good is it if the one who made you righteous gives you an instruction that you don't believe? Then you cease to function as a righteous priest, and you will be told to stop speaking. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. It's amazing how the story of Zechariah starts with him being righteous. He does his job at the temple. He then receives this miraculous word. He has a little back and forth where he misunderstands what's going on. He's silenced, finishes up his work, and goes home. He is purely a functionary for the temple. He <laughs> punched his clock, lit the incense, had a word with the angel Gabriel, left, couldn't speak again. He did his job. He punched the clock at the temple. He did his thing that he needed to do, and then he left. But it was only for this child to be born of Elizabeth in a miraculous way for God to do his work. If I might, Father, there is a right side of history, but that's only decided by the one who holds all of history in the palm of his hand. The beginning and the end are with God, and Zecharias tried to understand what to do next, and just asking the question was enough to say, you know what, don't speak. <laughs> you don't get to talk anymore. He got shut up, 
and we literally don't hear another word from him for the rest of the book of Luke. This is Jesus's uncle. But he said what he had to say, which is, how's it supposed to happen? That was it. He played his role. He lit the incense. He asked the question of the angel. And God said, thank you very much. And now I'm going to continue with my work. Just why don't you just keep your mouth shut so you get out of my way because I don't want you blabbing about what you thought you saw or what you think you felt or what you experienced. Just keep your mouth shut. Let the people wonder what those hand gestures mean. Just stay home. I'll take care of the rest. This is how the Lord works. Who is on the right side and who is on the wrong side of history? Just realize Zechariah might have been on the right side of history because the Lord, for whatever reason, declared him righteous. And it was the Lord who decided that Zechariah's wife would bear John the Baptist. But Zechariah never got to speak. So do the people in the story think, ah, now Zechariah, there's a guy who's on the right side of history. No, he didn't do anything. He literally didn't do anything except punch the clock at the temple. This is how God completely undermines institution. It's not the one who makes it to the top of the institution to give a speech on behalf of the institution and on the body and of all the beautiful people who are under him and yada, 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 who are making a one one hundredth of the amount of money that they're making. And he's going to decide who's on the right side of history. If he and his company are on the right side of history or if she and her nonprofit organization are on the right side of history or whatever. Zechariah literally doesn't get to make a speech. Because God said, no speeches, my friend. Your mouth is shut. The only speeches around here are coming from me, and I just let Gabriel do it for me because I'm an old man and I'm tired. Let Gabriel do the speech for me. But Zechariah, absolutely not. You're not giving the speech. And the people were amazed. They marveled. But there was no word. The only word is going to be the word of the Lord once Jesus finally comes in the desert. For now, they're fasting from the word of the Lord. They don't get to hear it because of the agency of the Lord who does not want them to hear the word. He is the one who controls the word. He is the one who controls history. He is the Alpha and the Omega. How can there be a right side of history when the Lord rolls up the heavens like a tent? The premise of the statement right side of history subjects the scriptural God to human narratives. History is non-functional. It's a concoction. There are just mammals wandering on the face of the earth until the Lord blasts them with his nostrils. The very idea that there is a progression is a human premise. The whole teaching of Scripture is to deconstruct us to understand that we are just earth mammals in the palm of God's hand with the other families in the wilderness. And we keep putting chains on each other and therefore putting chains on ourselves. We are this, we are that, we pertain to these, we pertain to those, we pertain to them. We make chains for each other and for ourselves with our histories and our buildings and constructions and our empires and our civilizations and our ideologies. What history? There is no history. There is just the words of God through his shepherd 
in the wilderness. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, I want to stop there, for two reasons. First, because the silencing and the full canceling of Zacharias as a priest, and the redestruction of the temple in the minds of the addressees, the lovers of God in the Gentile church, the addressees of the Gospel of Luke. All of that is an imperative precursor to the pregnancy of Elizabeth, so that in our minds, hearing this text, there would be absolutely no question that this pregnancy did not happen because of the temple or the temple priesthood. It must not be lost on any of us that Luke emasculates Zacharias before we turn to Elizabeth and the birth of this child. That's number one. Number two, she was in seclusion for five months. Speaking! Speaking! Women are communities. So, wherever the Spirit goes, according to God's will, there the Dabarim of God are preached. The Spirit rested in Elizabeth's womb, and for five months she was speaking the five books of Moses, the instruction of the law, which Zacharias, the priest, didn't trust on the lips of Gabriel, the messenger of Elohim. It's so striking. And while the assignment of verses are artificial, I like the fact, in this case, Richard, that they break verse 24 where they do. She kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, Let's not forget... Whatever happened between Zechariah and the angel Gabriel, he couldn't speak that to Elizabeth. Does Elizabeth even know that this was the direct hand of the Lord based on the prediction of the angel Gabriel, which he spoke to Zechariah in the temple? It's not clear that she would even know that, because her husband couldn't speak to her. Yet she conceived. We don't know how she conceived, if she slept with Zechariah. We don't get any of those details. All we know is that this vision happened. Gabriel said it was going to happen, and it did happen. Elizabeth didn't get a say in it like Sarah did to say, really, is this going to happen? I don't know. I don't see how this is going to happen. She just woke up one day, and this happened, and then for five months she hid herself. Now, why she hid herself? She stayed at home with Zechariah. There was no interaction. There was no big deal and wasn't tied to this vision in the temple. There was no way to tie it to anything. 
To anyone on the outside, no one would know this. We only know this because we happen to see what happened to Zechariah in the temple. But no one except you, me, and Zechariah knew that this is what happened. Well, and Gabriel and the Lord, naturally. So the fact that Elizabeth wouldn't know is significant. It just happens, and she goes with it. And that's what's important. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Couple of things. Number one, she trusts in the Lord where her husband did not. Number two, there is no mention of grace in the original Greek text. That is an addition of the New American Standard Bible. The actual text of Luke simply says that the Lord dealt with her in the days when he looked upon her to take away her disgrace. So where Zacharias was honored with the words of God by the mouth of Gabriel, Elizabeth was content with God simply looking upon her. And here one must be technical it does not say that Zacharias went into his wife. So therefore, we cannot assume that Zacharias went into his wife. It does say that the Lord looked upon her and took away her disgrace. Which means that the Lord intervened to make a child in the womb of Elizabeth. This is critical because it follows a pattern in Genesis of the Lord intervening to compensate for the inadequacy of male patriarchy and the failure of the human seed. So it's not simply a matter of saying, well, we don't know if they had sex. That's not how scripture works. If it doesn't say that Zacharias went into Elizabeth, then Zacharias didn't go into Elizabeth because that's how Scripture works. That's how Paul deals with Scripture when he exegetes Genesis in his letters. So on that level, it's the total elimination of the priestly line. Luke is anti patriarchy, anti-history, very clearly, very clearly. Elizabeth here is the receptacle, the recipient, the passive object here in the Lord's plan, in the Lord doing what he set out to do, in the Lord's history, not anything to do with human history or what human beings think is history. The Lord is writing the story with his word. That is the only story, the only history that matters. And all that Elizabeth can do is says, thus the Lord dealt with me. He looked on me and took away my reproach. It's simply a matter of fact. She simply states it. This has nothing to do with Mary. My soul is magnified. No, she simply states the fact. The Lord looked upon me when I wasn't able to have a child, and here I am having a child. The Lord took away this shame, this reproach from human beings simply by looking upon me. This is how the Lord is making his story happen. This, O Theophilus, 
is the thing that you need to understand if you're going to understand the things of the Lord. The Lord is the one who writes the story. The Lord is the one that makes the things happen. And it is the Lord who is able to take away reproach or ascribe reproach or shame people, take away their speech or give them speech as long as they're speaking his word, because it is his word that is the only history. It is the only story. This is the only story that is valid as a reference point. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.